Hello and welcome to Found in Translation, a weekly-ish exploration of one fellow's translation of the Christian scriptures, one chapter at a time. I'm Brandon Rhodes, and across the internet for me is the translator himself, Brandon Johnson. Hey there. Hey, good to see you. Do you have a grown-up beverage that is companioning you this evening? Yep, I've got a palmetto tonight, just basically a Manhattan, but with rum. Oh, very good. Very good. And I see you've got a spherical ice cube in there. I do. Yes. Spectacular. It's more fun that way. Mm-hmm. It does look nice. I'm having a martini with an olive and a half in there. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's get into this. We are talking this week about Matthew chapter six. If you haven't had a chance to read the translation, you should totally do that. You should stop listening to me. But there's a link in the show notes. Uh, where you can do that. So, as always, don't forget the footnotes in the show notes. So go ahead, give it a read. We will be here. Hey, welcome back. Let's get started. So this is continuing on through... The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is has paralleling the people of God going through the waters of baptism or exodus and liberation into a t- season of temptation in the wilderness, and then emerging finally on the precipice of a new kind of living in the land together, while the declaring of, of a sort of moral teaching paralleling Deuteronomy and the, the Torah. So this is continuing on in this teaching that he's got. So I want to get started on not just an individual verse or word, but a recurring, well, a recurring lack of a word, father. We've gone over this in other chapters that father is a word that you've tried to figure out how to work around having concerns with it. Can, but it shows up a lot of times in Matthew 6. Can you recap mm-hmm. what your motivation is and then maybe fly over a few of these examples of what you did differently? Yeah, and I, I don't know if I'd say I try to work around it per se so much as try to expand expand the range of what's there. And also, like full disclosure, I'm not fully settled on what I'm doing with it. So I've tried to do for a while with some of them at least trying to enunciate really what kind of fatherly role is in view and it really is culturally based too like at this point father was the head of the household the person in charge of all the staff or slaves and the provider like all of these things were very securely and we, we kind of have some of those basic assumptions in American culture too, but not nearly as concretely, as, as strictly, I think, as in, in the culture that we're working with here. There are specific things that it's leaning on in specific places. And I could just leave it as father, but I, I have a lot of women friends who struggle a lot with the largely masculine vocabulary mm-hmm. in, in most translations and, and in the original language too. It's it's not bad translations per se. If I can find a way to expand the vocabulary to feel more accessible, I want to try to do that. 
Yeah, these different ways that you translate it to really surface different layers of meaning and nuance to what father, like why is Jesus using the word father here? Well, in this case, it seems to be mostly about provision. So let's surface that. In this case, Mm -hmm. it seems to be more about um, comfort or in this case, inheritance, just looking at the wider context of it. Right. That does help clarify and give us, it frees us from that sort of reductive monogendering of God. Mm-hmm. and is constructive. It's not just saying, it's not neutering it and saying parent. Yeah, which feels really sterile. I don't know anybody yeah. who calls their parents, hi, parent. Thank like, good to see you. Like, Yeah, if yeah. a kid says that to you, immediately like run them by a metal detector because they might be a robot impersonating your child. It's just so mm-hmm. <laughs> impersonal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, that is, you do still run that risk in some of these translations where there's a, there's a personal, there's an intimacy to father. There's, there's a pattern among a number of new Testaments scholars and um, Bible nerds that this repeated use of the word father as the address of Jesus to the divine is tells us something about how Jesus, the nature of how Jesus relates to the divine. Like uh, Trip Fuller, podcast host, long time of uh, Homebrewed Christianity, great podcast. He periodically refers to, instead of saying God, he, he will say the one whom Jesus knew as father or the one whom Jesus called mm-hmm. father. As if to say, yeah, given that the word God is just this generic, like it's just a thin word. Let's mm-hmm. Let's add something meatier here and enunciate that sense of like, the, the Jesus divine intimacy angle that is lost here, but you are helping us it out is. in other ways. Yeah. And for that reason, I'd be open to feedback that would go a different direction. Yeah. Yeah. One of the so ways that I've this, done it here is yeah. uh, mm-hmm. master that shows up several times. A couple examples are in uh, verses one and four shows that they're because there's a lot of language of being compensated, being paid your wage. Yeah. So it's essentially they're your boss. Like this is your boss. This is your divi- divine employer. And that's kind of the role that's being done here as the, the father being like the head of the family business, basically. And then later on in verse six, I even considered mother here, which I might still do, but essentially I, I put it as the one who formed you. So when you go pray, go into a secluded room and close the door and hey, privately to the one who formed you. Um, Mm. And your master, also father, who is in secret, will repay you. Later in the chapter, a couple of times, one of them being in verse 32, I translate it as provider. Yeah. Because it fits the context there for that. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the hard one for me in all this is the the start of what's conventionally called the Lord's Prayer in verse 9, our divine master may representing you be held sacred. Mm-hmm. I think part of yeah, like part of the challenge of a translation is it being aware of the way in which preceding translations have been used in the worshiping life and imagination and memory of the church for a long time in that language anyway. Yeah. And so this is one of those points where it's like this, man, this is a thing that's just prayed every Sunday for so many Christians. Yeah. And I even, as part of my individual practice, 
of spiritual disciplines mm-hmm. sometimes recite the, the Lord's prayer. And I, I started with our father who is heart in heaven. I and mean, I use yeah, art, yeah. that very archaic, yeah, yeah. like, you know, how yeah. would be your name? Like, and yeah, that's because that's how I have it memorized. And that's probably how I'm going to keep saying it. Yeah. Yeah. That's but, the way the heart locked it in, which is cool. Mm-hmm. And Hey, maybe, maybe your girls will start praying the our divine master. Well, it should be cool. There's a, there's a few cool shifts you make in here. I'd like to turn to those now. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, that first line of the prayer, uh, our divine master may, I'm, I'm just going to read the whole prayer and then we'll go back through it. Our divine master may representing you be held sacred, establish your reign, carry out your vision in the land, just like in the heavens. Give us the food we rely on today and release claim to what we owe, just as we release claim to what others owe us. And don't put us to the test, but instead protect us from hardship. Amen. So that, yeah, yeah, yeah. amen. <laughs> in yeah. the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So yeah, that, that first phrase, may representing you be held sacred instead of hallowed be thy name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, this is, this is, boy, you know, you talk about getting rid of religious technical language, holy shitballs. There's a lot of it in the conventional translation here. <laughs> but not, oh, in, oh. not in your previous sentence here. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, shitballs yeah. is not a, tra- is not a religious mm. technical term. No, not typically. Uh, no, not, yeah. not outside of the good place. Yeah. So why not, how would be thy name? What's... What needs to change there? Yeah, this something that I've done throughout the translation where it says anything in my name or in whoever's name. We it, this is weird tradition of we've used it like an incantation, like where we end our prayers in Jesus' name. Mm-hmm. And then that, that's like we've stamped it with the magic words. So now it's going to come true. And it's really weird and misses the point is that when someone comes in someone's name, they're representing them. They're speaking their words for them. They're taking action on behalf of them. They're Mm. for all intents and purposes. Like it's, it's like they have the power of attorney. Like they're burying the image. Yeah. They they are ambassadoring. Yeah. So yeah, going back to Genesis one, we're all called with this vocation to represent, to be in the name of the creator. So in the name of language is Imago Dei language, is image of God, language, mm-hmm. is human vocation language. Yeah. Go back to Ten Commandments, the don't take the Lord's name in vain has nothing to do with saying, Oh my God. And everything to do with when I tell you what God wants or that this is what God teaches or that this is the appropriate behavior that God approves of, I better know what I'm talking about and not be acting on my own interest Mm -hmm. because I'm representing God. So even if I don't use the word God at all, like, and I tell you that, you know, wearing that short of a skirt is a sin. There's an implication there that I'm telling you what God thinks and I'm probably taking the Lord's name in vain in doing that because mm-hmm. I'm claiming to represent God when I'm absolutely not. Yeah. 
Yeah. No wonder Jesus is so pissy <laughs> towards the religious professionals of his day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They're consistently taking the Lord's name in vain. So the, so here in this sentence that I have translated, may representing you, that's the in your name, you know, your name part, and then be held sacred. The hallowed is a, just a really old word for make sacred, make holy. Mm-hmm. Another, a more uh, theological technical term would be sanctify. May taking your name be sanctified. Like, let's treat this with the respect and the care that it deserves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a great. I guess the caricature, the conventional translation or the way that translation is conventionally held with this, it's because we're, because I think for the most part for Christians of Western traditions, there's this emphasis, there can be an emphasis on God's holiness is God's distance, God's Mm. inability to make contact or intimacy or union with any of this. And so the the debut, like the first things Jesus says is, man, you're so high up there. Man, may we all realize how completely sterile you are. And it's like, well, yeah, God is beyond our dipshittery, our foolishness. Yeah, sure. But it's almost like, it's like giving another little foothold for that bit of shame of like how far we are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this, this, this angle is much more like, how would you contrast, how would you contrast it? Well, one is like, holy is your name is just bad translation. It's not the right parts of speech. (laughs) You're like not even getting into the consequences. You're like, that's just translation. This well, because what makes that important is that that's just a statement, a statement of fact. This is, it's actually a command form, but a a form that we don't have in English. We don't have a third person command form in English, but Greek does. Third person command form. Yeah. Third person mandative. It's just really tough to translate into English in a way that makes a lot of sense. So you get a lot of may someone do this or, you know, trying to capture that, like, we hope this other person does this thing, but it's. So that's, so it's essentially like, hey, us and everyone represent God and and take that seriously as a command. It has nothing to, it's not a statement of fact about God. It's a, it's a direction to those who claim to follow God. Yeah. And so if that's the debut, then we can just wonder, we can keep that in mind for everything else that follows. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Establish your reign, carry out your vision. May your kingdom come and your will be done. Mm-hmm. In the in the land, just like in the heavens. Now, in the land has a much more, I use this word positively, provincial sense to it than on earth. Like, why did you why did you choose that? Yeah, well, what what do you mean by provincial? Like it's uh it's a local, there's a localness, there's a particularity to it instead of on earth, as in you know, like earth is the word that English speakers have for the third rock from soul. Right. right. Yeah, uh, it's not about the planet. And that's that's no, it's not yeah. about the planet. It's like 
in the land, in mm-hmm. this place, in the same yeah. way that in when in the Noah flood legend, the area that was covered in water, the word used there is Haaretz. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the everything yep. you can see from the top of a mountain. It's not mm-hmm. all land. Yeah, I had a professor just spend a lot of time teaching us about that Haaretz, the word the land in relation to Eden in my seminary days, and trying to make the case that he thought that the location of Eden being the land described specifically in loca- in creation, so that Genesis. Uh, one and two were about a specific place on the planet, not the whole planet. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it says it's between and, these rivers and yeah. Well, yeah, Eden was, was specifically between those rivers, but he takes the whole creation narrative to be kind of about Eden mm-hmm. specifically, not the whole planet. And then saying that the, the word land is the same as promised land and all the stuff later. So that trying to make the case that Eden is in where was located where Israel is currently located, Palestine. Yeah, yeah, that's, I Um, fully agree. And which is great. And so this is one of a couple of times where I actually raised my hand and spoke up during class to ask a genuine question and felt like really shot down because my professors had no answer or not a good answer. And I'm not trying to stir up trouble. I'm truly just curious. So I said, well, what about flood? You know, four chapters later in Genesis, is that just Eden? Is that just the promised land? Is that just Palestine? And he's yeah. like, nope, that's the whole earth. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't give me a reason. Just nope. I arbitrarily get to decide that I want to win an argument against the atheists. So that has to be the whole earth. Yeah. Yeah. This was a Baptist affiliate seminary. So yeah, conservative uh, Baptist specifically. Yes, conser- so. Capital C, capital B. Yep. So let the discerning listener understand what was going on there. So yeah, you chose the word land here. Yeah. And I think I think I've done that throughout where the mm-hmm. word whatever earth cos cosmos, the word for earth or universe, land, the everywhere that we know place word is used. That's going to be really interesting as we go yeah. further along from John 3:16 on into the epistles yeah yeah and it's not cosmos i just misspoke that that's that is world gaze yeah i believe is is the word here yeah for land gaze oh so like gaia like or like I the gaia pro- probably is related to gaia yeah yeah cool nice to see gaia in here mm-hmm. uh so uh let's see just like in the heavens that's mm-hmm. a squirmy one as well, isn't it? This uh, this binary yeah. between like earth and heaven and like what the hell does what the hell does that mean? I've gone back and forth, <laughs> and I th- I think actually where I've landed by now is that I'm going back through and I'm changing the the handful of places where I did heavens, mm-hmm. and I'm just fu- I'm you know what, dang it, I'm going all in. I'm just gonna say sky. Oh really? Because that is what it meant, and it was used symbolically to represent where God is like the presence of God. And let's just let the actual symbol do the representing instead of trying to have some other word to do it. Let's just do that. Hmm. Cause yeah, there's, there's three different tiers of how you can, how you want to translate this. One would be sky. Like, right. That's what it means. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, third one, the other end would be just heaven. You could even right capital go, H. Yeah, you could heaven. even capitalize yeah. it. Yeah, heaven yep. as a discrete place. We all know what it is and such. And then in the middle would be what you did here as of this recording, the heavens, which really does like give a a good fulcrum mm-hmm. energy to it. Like it's it, you're strictly speaking using a phrase that means sky, right? But you're you, but it but it also is very it's quite self-aware mm-hmm. that you're used to the capital h here right yep <laughs> on the earth just like in heaven capital h yeah mm-hmm. that's that's what i'm used to and even though i'm trying to get rid of religious technical terms and make it accessible to what it's actually saying it's still felt hard to let go of that mm. it's it is specifically trying to contrast like down below and up above, like physically to represent something that's spiritually true, mm-hmm. but the words are very physical words at, used as symbols. And it was hard to, hard to let go of the language and go with sky because it, it, it almost feels like sky is a little flippant, but you know what? Jesus used the word for sky. That's what this word means. That's what, other languages, like I think we've mentioned before, like cielo in in Spanish is just the word for sky. And we also talk about that as being the word for where God is. So in, into English, you have to choose. Am I translating the sky from cielo or am I translating it heaven from cielo? But I mean, that's that's why the heavens yeah. is good, because like when we talk about the God dwelling, the place where God dwells as the sky, you are strictly phenomenologically being faithful to the intent of the first century like authors but like you don't, you don't believe in some like bearded white guy on a cloud right like it's like god living no. in the sky is a pejorative teasing of dualistic yeah. christian thought and we need to let go of reading things so literally and if we have to have the whole separate word called heaven instead of sky because we don't know how to read symbols to, <laughs> as symbols there is a problem we need to be able to read symbols as symbols yes and that's why i will be contending for sticking with the heavens i really like that as a um training wheels sure yeah 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 it it acknowledges the d- dual intent of it while also formally being stuck in the phenomenological. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious what the final. Yeah. 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 There, there's, there's no, I, that's what I love about this project, man, is there's no, there's well, rarely like one right. No, it's way absolutely to do true. any of this. Like, like we were talking about in our kind of introductory episodes, like I didn't set out to create, the correct translation as opposed to all these other ones that are incorrect. I'm trying to highlight things in particular ways to make things accessible in particular ways to clarify things that I feel like have been obscured in traditional translations, but there is no such thing as the correct way to translate this. It does not, that's not how translation works. So moving along, We've got in verse 12 and release claim to what we owe, just as we release claim to what others owe us. And then moving and skipping down to 14 for if you release your claim on people's shortfalls, your divine master will also release claim on yours. 
you're bringing in some economic imagery here, or you're you're insisting upon oh. rather economic imagery. The, the the Greek is economic in nature. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's a that's a steadfast theme in your translation project. If if there's an economic image going on, like make sure that doesn't get well lost in translation. It's one of the things you're trying to find. Yeah, which I alluded at the end of our last episode, at the end of chapter five, that there was mm-hmm. like kind of a discovery that I made working on chapter six. Mm-hmm. And that that's it, is just how jam-packed full of economic language this chapter is. And I did not go into it trying to push that. I just kept discovering word after word after word that was about that. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I, I can't ignore this. Like this is clearly on purpose and I clearly need to make that clear. Yeah. Um, so talking about all the way back in verse one, you won't receive compensation. I think a lot of translations do reward there, but I never talk about my paycheck as my reward. Like that's the word there is your, your payroll from your work after, after you're doing your job has nothing to do with like, I turned, I turned in the criminal on the most wanted poster and I got my reward, like at doing this, like amazing thing. Like, no, this is just what I'm owed for doing my job. That's the word there. And that shows up several times through this chapter, that word. And then like verse four will repay you. Same thing. That's, it's like pay you what you're owed because you've done your job. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And then that, that ha- both of those words keep getting used repeatedly. And then you have down now in verse 12, release claim. It's traditionally translated forgive, which technically is correct because I can talk about like I'm applying for the public service student loan forgiveness program and (laughs) meaning that I'm trying to get someone to just decide that they're not going to make me pay back my debt. And that's what this word means. That kind of forgive, not a you hurt my feelings or or wronged me in some way. And I decide that I'm not going to be mad at you anymore has nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's entirely, I'm going to let go of my claim on your debt to me. That's the word there. It's also actually the same word that in chapter five is translated traditionally as divorce, which is interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that one caught me off guard in the footnotes. Hmm. And the idea is that because it's it's not specific to any context, it's the central idea of the word is about releasing, sending away, creating distance between the person doing it and something else. So whether that's a wife or a debt, the same thing, same word applies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And whatever sense in which this may also be like metaphorical or metonymous for a wider longing for how the divine relates to the hearers of this prayer. At the Mm -hmm. very least, it's a jubilee prayer, man. Absolutely. You cannot separate this from the beginning of chapter one, those six sets of seven generations being an allusion to Leviticus 25 and the Jubilee. This, this rhythm every, what, 50 years where debts every 50 are- 50 years, yep. Yeah. Debts are yeah, canceled, every, slaves are free. Every seven years, the slaves are freed, actually. Well, it's only, wow. And then, and typically slaves 
are slaves because they owe a debt. So every seven years, the slaves are freed. And then, so that's every six, you know, if we're thinking Matthew one, seven generations, and then every seven sets of seven, there's a 50th year. So 49 years. And then there's a 50th that's the Jubilee year. And not only are the debts forgiven in the 49th year, but then also all land ownership is reset back to the original allotments that are described in Torah. In the land, just like in the heavens. Yep. So we've got massive property redistribution and the land itself gets a rest every seven years. So every seven years, it's one year. And then at the seventh seven, it's two years, the 49th year and the 50th year, you don't do any farming. What about livestock? The, the livestock get to exist but they don't have to do it they, they you don't have oxen like doing labor on your farm because you're not farming yeah okay so that not only do people who have been enslaved because of debt mm-hmm. they get to rest and be released from their debt people who have had to sell their property in order to survive receive their property back and you know so so if someone sells it the year after jubilee it's you know maybe 49 years later so maybe it's the next generation or two after but the family gets it back and the land gets to rest i don't think there's enough emphasis on how much attention scripture pays to caring for the land Um, the land takes care of us god gives us the land to care for us and we are very clearly in at the beginning of genesis tasked with caring for the land and then throughout the torah things like having a sabbatical year rest and then jubilee year rest we're supposed to be caring for the land it's not just to be used up but we don't pay attention to that a lot in the west anyway it would certainly compromise a lot of justifications for a lot of shitty things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that language is starting with Matthew one and it shows up here again, we're forgiving debts. I forgive the debt of others as forgive my debt as just as others forgive. I forgive others debts release claim to what we owe just as we release claim to what others owe us. Yeah. What does and it then, mean to you? Go ahead. No, go for it. Well, I'm just curious, what does it mean to you that, like, he's like, with that in mind, all of you pray like this, Jubilee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. how did Jesus come to this, like, clarity? And what the hell is, what do we do with it? I mean, it's throughout Torah. The prophet, it's in Torah, it's in the prophets. He's not making this up. He's not making this up. It's, it's important. And it seems like maybe a lot of others have focused on there's a point way later in the book. Uh, it's like chapter 24, 25, 23, somewhere in there. One of the, one of those three specifically 23, 24, 25. He tells people, tells the Pharisees that you're following the Torah law to give a 10th of your dill that you've grown in your herb garden as tithe to your, to the temple, like great. But then you're not doing all these things related to justice and taking care of the poor. And like, and then he tells them it's like, you're straining out gnats, but swallowing camels is the language he uses. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're paying a really, really close attention to these really detailed, like, personal piety kinds of rules and then completely ignoring the main points of taking care of each other. Miss the forest for the trees. 
And even then, only some of the trees. Yeah, miss the forest for the like branches, the the ferns, (laughs) maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, something small. So it's here. He's trying to highlight these are like the big things that are highlighted in Torah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and. So when he says. When he says in what we call chapter five, you know, I didn't come to like erase a serif of the law a jot or a tittle, a jot yeah. or a <laughs> tittle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He kind of meant it. He's like, look, you're yeah. the ones who erased jots and tittles like the entire friggin section on Jubilee. Holy shit, guys. Like, yeah, we're going to never... have to recenter that into Michael. My my prayer <laughs> yeah they never once celebrated or honored a jubilee as far as, far, as we know there's no historical evidence uh for all the hundreds of years before jesus from when moses was communicating that there's no evidence that they ever did it what's staggering to me is that it was the memory of that was preserved yeah however the construction of the torah happened the fact that it made it even, you know, at its like latest assembly dates, half a millennia. You know, one of the things we probably should have done was this. It's yeah. like, boy, that gets me all the more curious about and speculative about the Hebrew people's sense of discretion and what they remembered in their in their written stories. Mm-hmm. Because I would definitely yeah. want to omit that if we didn't do it and it would be a threat to a status quo. I'd be like, sure, there's a lot of shame bound up in that. Yeah. There, there's a real sense of, no pun intended, honor, the kind yeah. of shame in recording it anyway. Yeah. 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 We, we owe the Hebrew scribes quite a bit, I think. Yeah. That's one of their, one of my favorite characteristics is their, their moral courage and their the vulnerability of their storytelling. Mm-hmm. So moving along, we are down. Let's let's jump down to verses like nineteen through twenty four. That big paragraph there, where he's talking about moths and thieves and well, you don't use the word treasures, but then like light eyeballs and. Yeah, there's all kinds of weird things going on here. Magic eyeballs. And, yeah, yeah, like yeah. magic, magic eight eyeballs, and it, it's a it's a wacky pivot from here's how you should pray, pray, and then 16 through 18, like seriously, don't be cocky about it, and then it gets into this thing that's a little all over the place. Your translation is trying to surface things a little bit differently. What did you learn about this? Kind of. Yeah. It's the basic concept of talking about the eye being the lamp of the body shows up in other places. Jesus didn't invent that. It shows up in the Mishnah and other other writers. And it's always about greed, essentially, is what it's talking about. So I know that I grew up in youth group with the, the youth lust. leaders <laughs> teaching it, it being about lust, right? Yeah. Which is, sure, like looking at like chapter five, looking at a woman as if I own her, that's a problem. Yeah, patriarchy is a subset of, of capitalist or uh, material. Sure. It edifying instead of thouifying yeah. reality. Yeah. However, Matthew 6, 19 through 24 is not about lust. It's exclusively about greed. Except that the word greed is one that we I think most of us like pretty easily dismisses about the billionaires, not about me. Yeah. And that's no, we don't get off so easily. 
but there's a couple of things in here, a couple of changes that I've actually, some of them I'm not like fully settled on. Like I could use some help. So I put, I, I kind of have gone back and forth between verse 19 here. Don't stuck up on material possessions for yourselves versus that's what I have it now. And I, but for a while I was t- trying out, don't hoard up mm-hmm. material possessions for yourselves. The, the meaning isn't super different there, but. I don't know which is better. I think I like this one a little bit more, but but the bigger difference here is ma- the word material compared to in the next verse, verse 20, what God values, material possessions and what God values in the Greek are much more parallel. It's treasures or possessions that you've stored away on earth or treasures or things you've stored away, possessions in the sky, in heaven, depending on what we're doing with that word. The heavens. In the heavens. Right. Yes. Sorry. Yep. You've got it, Brandon. Yep. The heavens. But of course, we're not literally like putting dollar bills in the sky because that's nonsense. Yeah. But so taking it, like taking away the imagery, which is what I've done here, which I'm not super thrilled about. And trying to make it emphasize the clarity of meaning rather than like the beauty of the poetic phrasing, material possessions, things that are important for my bodily existence, for the way the society that I live in, what that cares about and what that emphasizes, those things, those kinds of possessions. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't, I, I don't think it has to be things from. Nordstrom or Crate and Barrel or I don't know I don't know what fancy stores where are. Do people, where do people where, shop? where do rich people shop? I don't know. It doesn't have to be a Ferrari. San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. It's just it could be from the dollar store, but if you go into the to the dollar store and spend 30 bucks on one dollar pieces of trash to make yourself feel better because it gives you a sense of pleasure to be able to walk out with 30 new items even though they're garbage. I think that <laughs> applies here. Yeah. Like, because it's, you're trying to get a sense of security, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning and value from something that doesn't have any value. A Ferrari doesn't have any real value. It's metal and wires and rubber. And it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. It costs a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. It gives you some status. It gives you a super high dopamine boost, but it doesn't mean anything any more than the little like cubes of compressed cloth that turn into washcloths with pictures of SpongeBob on it. Do it, Dollar Tree. Um, and yes, I <laughs> yes I have personal experience with this. Yeah, you're you're trying to. It's important that the pastoral or the imperative energy of this line of this teaching be caught by those who read this, which will at least be us and your kids. Sure. And maybe anybody listening to us right now. Are there any of those? I don't know. And there's a desire to be able to be faithful to the, um, to this as literature. Yes. Yeah. As literature, this is a orally sourced document Mm-hmm. It's read all that is orally shared and disclosed. So easily rememberable mm-hmm. teachings like don't store things 
don't put your heart into things that are earthly, put thing, um, things that are heavenly. That's easy to remember. It's really, really, really easy. So finding a way, yeah, this is where like, I, I would really be curious if anybody can come up with something more helpful here that doesn't fall off one side of the road that you've yeah. really tried to steer folks away from without also without, without losing the, I mean this in a really sincerely like anthropologically sincere sense, the memorizability, mm-hmm. the memorableness of this, the orality of it, as others would say. Sure. You know, and I'm open to feedback that would say, you know what? We're not dumb. We know what this means. <laughs> Just go ahead and say, don't stock up, stock up on possessions for yourselves in the land. Instead, stock up for yourselves possessions in the sky or in the heavens. We know that you can't have things in the sky physically. We know there's more here and we can figure it out. And maybe that's worth putting it back that way. It could be something along the lines of don't store up things that are close to your heart, but things that are close to God's heart. Mm, but even then, that that's still of, like mis- kind of that pairing there. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a pairing, there's a parallelism. And also it kind of creates this sense that your own desires and longings are by using that as a blunt force object. It's sort of saying you can't sure. trust your desires, which is, yeah. Boy, which there are verses that would support that, but you know, there are other verses that, contradict it quite strongly so yeah and there's just enough neural yeah there's enough arguments that like the desire our our desire isn't inherently wrong yeah no goodness no yeah yeah what 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 i find interesting about this paragraph here is that because prior to this you have made the discretion to insist upon the surface of the economic right from the Lord's prayer yeah, and insisting it, on like highlighting the fact that it's there and that it sometimes gets hidden. Yeah. It makes this feel like less of an about face and therefore I'm not, my brain doesn't just go. It just goes, Oh yeah. The Lord is talking about economics. The Lord is talking about money. It's talking about the way we relate to materiality that could be a threat to, well, honestly, the more important parts of our materiality. Cause this is about this is money language, but it's not about money mm-hmm. only. It's about how do you relate to anything that compromises your communion, that compromises your ability yep. to be family with those you are in covenant with the creator and the the breather of the breath that is in your lungs that is all that you have. Yeah. That, that's because yeah, that's what God's all about, you know. Spoiler, Jesus says that later on that the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is actually interesting because he doesn't say strength. Hebrew says strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And yeah, you kind of have to choose wealth, material security, status, power, or loving your neighbor. They cannot both happen at once. And that's why, you know, well, at the very end there, the very end of verse 24, you can't be dedicated in service to both God and wealth. And in this case, mm-hmm. you've capitalized wealth. Like this is a clear divinization 
of mm-hmm. something like how 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 do you decide to hold down shift on that letter? Yeah, the word. I mean, the Greek word there is, which is the name of a Syrian de- deity of wealth. Like really, that was like a Syrian god. Yes, I think he's near Syria as he's doing this teaching. Actually, he's up up north in in Galilee, right south of the border of Syria. But yeah, so that's the name of the god of wealth for the Syrian people that it's used there. So it's not just saying like, yeah, it makes it tough if you care about money to actually like be faithful to God's teachings and, and, and the path that God has for us to walk. No, no, no. Like just because you're not killing animals and burning them on an altar in front of a statue doesn't mean you're not worshiping idols, prioritizing accumulation of wealth and the power and status that come with wealth is serving mammon, Mamona, the, the god of wealth. And therefore is infidelity, infidelity to Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know that I could pinpoint any more appropriate indictment to American culture than this one right here, but. <laughs> Let's just jump to Revelation and see what yeah. happens. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow so you know he doesn't stop there he hits this strong point of like seriously don't worship the false god and it's not just the freaking statue man it's Mm -hmm. it's that thing you have a little purse of on your on your belt yep and he he jumps in you don't have to be throwback to last episode you don't have to be killing babies to be an idol worshiper. You can just be like a really savvy businessman who doesn't care about other people and is all about making the next deal. Yeah. Hear that clearly. Being a good businessman is not being a good follower of Jesus. Mm -hmm. When I visited France with my orchestra in college, we were staying with just families hosting our group there. And they asked us like what each of us were majoring in because we were college Mm -hmm. orchestra. And one of the people in my group was majoring in business. And our host was just genuinely confused. George Bush, who was the president at the time, George W. And he's genuinely confused. Like he's George W. says he's a Christian. I don't think you can be a Christian and a businessman. And we're coming from a Christian private university and my the person in our group was just like sullen and silent after that. Like, cause he's, he was a business major. I think the guy got it. Like you can't be all about making money and be a Christian. That's not possible. Jesus makes it very clear. And you can study how to do, how to run businesses and run businesses in a way that isn't sure. in tension with the teachings of sure. Jesus. That Having a business clear. degree is not necessarily the same thing as having that be like profit being your, what you're all about. Yeah. We're not saying that that means we're raising both of our eyebrows, but it friggin' definitely means we're raising one of our eyebrows yeah. like the Frenchman. Yeah. French person. Yeah. I think I have less of a ra- eyebrow raise for people who have a vision for a particular product or service that they want to distribute because like, they think it'll make the world a better place and then then go back to school to get their business degree to be able to make that happen versus 
a kid out of high school going to college and getting a business degree because they want to make some money. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, we have covered (laughs) a very dense stretch of scripture here and looking at a few deep themes that seem to be close to the heart of Jesus. From how do we pray to how do we name the divine and the various metaphors for how the divine expresses communion with the cosmos to our bodiliness and the abstractions of that bodiliness that we call money. And what do we do with that and repent of our idolatry of it? We've covered a lot of ground here. So that probably means we should probably wrap it up for this week. We're both really thankful for your company, listeners, for this leg of the journey. The easiest way to support Founding Translation is to leave us a rating or even better, a review in your podcast player of choice. That makes it easier for more people to find the show. And maybe those people you'll see in the comments section. Well, how do you get to the comment section of our Google document of this translation? Well, that's actually the second best way to support the show. Become a sponsor. You can do that for just $5 a month. So yeah, when you do that, you get comment access on the translations Google Doc and the satisfaction of knowing that you are supporting exceptionally nerdy independent media. You can find the link to that in the show notes. The music you're listening to is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Found in Translation was produced by Perry FM on Chinook land. Say goodbye, Brandon. Bye. Bye, everybody.